Welcome, everyone, and I do mean everyone, to Three Right Turns, the podcast where the host explains how it came to be that his head was way up his butthole, so you hopefully don't have to experience the pain, the shame, the trauma of cranial rectal collocation. I am that host, Aaron, and today I'm going to talk about a simple little topic, canceling. What does it mean to be canceled? Is canceling bad? What's the difference between criticism and abuse? And is there possibly a bigger threat to liberal Western democracy than angry people tweeting? This is a hot topic to news, of course, because a few weeks ago, several prominent writers and public intellectuals, many, I suspect, of suffering from cranial rectal collocation, co-signed an open letter published in Harper's Magazine's that stated topic was on justice and open debate. Let me read a few key quotes from this letter. It's now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders and a spirit of panic damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reform. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher fired for circulating peer-reviewed academic study. And the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price and greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal and agreement. I mean, who can argue with that? We all know people who have said things that are true but unpopular and got canceled for it. Galileo was canceled by the Catholic Church for saying that the Earth orbited the sun. Britain tried to cancel America for saying people had a right to self-determination. Martin Luther King Jr. got the ultimate cancellation for having a dream that people could work together for the benefit of all. You can't have a free and functional society if everyone behaves like that. You can't make progress. You gotta have the free and open interchange of ideas. So people wrote in. They tweeted. They emailed, they subreddited me. They wanted to know what I thought of it all. So here's my hot take. It depends. I mean, all that stuff sounds really bad and abstract. An editor being fired for running a controversial topic, professors losing tenure for reading literature, people losing their livelihoods because of an honest mistake. But before I give my entire answer... I want to talk about this business of cancel culture because I think one of the problems we're dealing with is a confusion between canceling something and harassment and abuse. A Twitter mob sucks, but it's not the same thing as the Catholic Inquisition, you know? It's not a hangman's noose. So what does it mean to cancel something? Well, if we're talking about a television show, and this is broadly where this term comes from, It means that a network no longer wants to finance the production of something. It means that production either finds another network or another source of funding, or it halts production. But to be canceled, you have to be on the air. You had to have had a platform, and now you don't. If a show never gets ordered to pilot, well, then it can't be canceled because it was never a thing. So when we talk of canceling in this modern context, what we're really talking about was withdrawing funding, support, Uh, More generally, just attention. Canceling doesn't require mass abuse and harassment. It doesn't even require criticism at all. When Netflix canceled all their Marvel series, they didn't whip up crowds to harass the stars. The showrunners, the writers, to menace them at their homes and offices. They didn't try to get them blackballed from ever working on the show again, you know. And it wasn't the result of critics saying that the shows all sucked. I mean... Except for Iron Fist. Iron Fist sucked. But that's not why Netflix pulled the plug. They just didn't renew those contracts. And they stopped paying the producers and writers for whatever reason. And all those Marvel shows went away. On the other hand, campaigns of harassment and abuse don't necessarily mean that you'll get canceled. The civil rights campaigns of the 60s didn't get canceled, despite receiving incredible abuse and harassment. 
And not to draw a comparison to that at all, because obviously, but, you know, I get a fair amount of harassments and shitty things emailed and sent to me, and I'm still doing the podcast. In fact, if the volume of the harassment reached a thousand times what it is now, as long as the patrons are willing to support the project, hey, I'm still on the internet over here. Fuck them. They can't do anything to me. I've got no sponsors to spook. If some asshole on the street recognized me and said, fuck you and fuck your right turns and socked me right in the jaw, probably still wouldn't stop. But on the other hand, let's say I open the next podcast with, hey, everybody, I just got done reading this bell curve book, and it's completely changed my mind on this whole racism angle. And then I started to veer away from my Star Trek Republican utopian ideals and started preaching that, you know, the races, we just need to live separately. Immigration is race mixing. It's just not working out. In fact, it's a plot to weaken and eventually destroy the white race. And you'll never guess who's behind it. I'm going to give you a hint. First name's the. Last name rhymes with shoes. But I'd probably get lots of criticism in volumes that would be fair to call abusive or harassing. Moreover, I'd lose probably 100% of my patrons overnight. And the rest would probably soon follow as soon as they got a chance to actually hear the podcast. Jim and Cecily would stop helping me, probably publicly distancing themselves from me, which would be very painful for me, losing my best friend and and my wife, I'd be effectively canceled. But would that be a bad thing? Do my patrons owe me their support no matter what I say? Do my friends and colleagues have to stand beside me no matter what? Does YouTube, Megaphone, Twitter, Reddit, the private companies I use to distribute and finance this show, do they owe me their platforms? I hope that kind of seems like a silly question because it is, because of course they don't. But on the other hand, there are periods of time in this country where I would absolutely have been canceled in terms of financial support, blacklisted, harassed by the federal government for the Star Trek Republican utopian ideals that I've already espoused on this podcast. There are many periods of time where critiquing capitalism, being anti-war, Criticizing a certain religion or nation or group would have made things very uncomfortable and even dangerous. And I like concrete examples, so let's talk about a few. How many actors and writers lost their jobs and reputation during the Red Scare period of McCarthyism? Today, we have several Democratic socialists serving at all levels of state and federal government. And a social Democrat came within a few breaks and a few tight races in a few states of winning the Democratic nomination this presidential cycle. The U.S. government canceled Muhammad Ali in the prime of his boxing career for refusing to fight the Vietnam War. Ali is the greatest boxer of all time, and that's with Uncle Sam stealing every birthday from 25 to 30 away from him. And yet... Thinking the Vietnam War was bad and we should never have been involved is a very mainstream view right now. In 1992, Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope while performing live on stage at Saturday Night Live to protest the Catholic Church's involvement in covering up the sexual abuse of children by their priests. This was 10 years before this became public knowledge, the Church's involvement in this scandal. And her career was destroyed, literally overnight. She was booed off stages. Her tours were canceled. People ran a steamroller over thousands of her records and cassette tapes and other merchandise right in front of Rockefeller Plaza, right at the scene of the crime. People questioning corporations and capitalism were not a threat to our country, although you'll still find a steady supply of people who would take exception to that statement. And Ali was absolutely right. Though you'll still find today people like Laura Ingram on news networks telling black sportsmen to shut up and be silent about their political beliefs. And Sinead O'Connor was right. But you know, it's still tough to be a woman with a controversial opinion today. Some of these people face pressure and persecution by the state, some by the general public and corporate sponsors. It's not exactly a new phenomenon. Now, maybe you could fairly ask if someone like Sinead O'Connor could have made a better statement instead of tearing the Pope's face right in half on live television and saying, fight the real enemy. What if she had said, we need to ask the Pope what he's doing to protect the children? But another fair question to ask is, was there a way to raise the question of if the Pope, who the public thought of as a representative of God, a figure synonymous with holiness and Christianity, was covering up a pedophile scandal among his brother priests in a way that wouldn't have people shocked 
and outrage that someone would even suggest such a thing? Why is it Sinead O'Connor's responsibility to frame fair criticism of something utterly abhorrent in a respectful, sensitive way? Was there a way for a black man, even a very popular, wealthy, famous black man, to question the U.S. government's policy in Vietnam and refuse to go halfway around the world killing in their name without being jailed and publicly ostracized? That seemed like a lot of them have tried, and it didn't really go well for them. Was there a way to win civil rights without black people being beaten and jailed? It's interesting to contrast the tone of this Harper's letter, written by some of the most famous, influential, and wealthy authors and intellectuals, with that of co-founder of the Black Panthers, Huey Newton. Newton said, The first lesson a revolutionary must learn is that he is a doomed man. Why did he say this? Because if you traffic in ideas that question the status quo, that question a system that society is founded on, and especially when these ideas are rooted in a place of truth and righteousness, you're a danger, and you will be treated by that system accordingly. You may win the war in the long run, but your personal safety and comfort are not guaranteed, nor is your life. And the founding fathers of America understood that. If they had lost a revolution, every single one of them would have been hung as traitors or left to rot on a prison hulk. Best case scenario. John Lewis, the famous civil rights leader whose death we all mourned this past weekend, said he was convinced that he was going to die that day on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama from the police beating him. A beating he received for the crime of peacefully marching in his Sunday best to protest for his civil rights. The bridge, if you didn't know, was named after Civil War General and founder of the Alabama branch of the Ku Klux Klan, Edmund Pettus, for just extra historical irony. And it's still named for him, by the way. John Lewis is dead after a lifetime of service to his country and his community, and Pettus' name is still proudly worn by that damned bridge. If the folks in Selma today become moved by Mr. Lewis's death, and they decide to rename that bridge, perhaps for Mr. John Lewis himself, has Pettus been canceled? And if so, is that a bad thing? If people turn out by the thousands to protest and affect this change, are they destroying history? Would it be fair to describe them as harassing the civil leaders of Selma until this change was affected? J.K. Rowling was one of the signatories of this Harper letter, and her inclusion among the others caused quite the stir. Uh, I raised my eyebrows because I was highly critical of her letter on turf wars. You know, that was the context of our discussion uh, that we had on the subject of uh, transgender people at feminism just a few podcasts ago. And why? Was I upset that a woman was just asking questions about the nature of human sex and gender? No, I was upset because I thought that Turf Wars was an incredibly dishonest open letter in itself. And I'll just give a brief example. It's from the very opening. In this opening, she writes, For people who don't know, last December I tweeted my support for Maya Forstater, a tax specialist who lost her job for what was deemed quote-unquote, transphobic tweets. She took her case to an employment tribunal asking the judge to rule whether a philosophical belief that sex is determined by biology is protected in law. The judge ruled that it wasn't. My God, a woman lost her job for simply stating a scientific truth that human sex is determined by biology. What kind of illiberal dystopia is the UK living in anyway? But was it the truth? Well, Maya Forstater was upset that, among other things, a trans woman was named on the Financial Times and Heroes Champions of Women in Business list, an annual ranking of the UK's 100 company leaders who support women in business. Here was her commentary on the matter on Twitter. Weird that he felt entitled to accept the award instead of saying, sorry, there's been a mistake. I'm a man who challenges gender norm. When men wear makeup, heels, and dresses, they don't become women, but the norm seems to be that we should pretend they do to avoid hurt feelings. He is a part-time cross-dresser. He is a white man who likes to dress in women's clothes. Now, is that different than saying that biological sex is real? When even the vast majority of trans people would agree with that. Trans people aren't delusional. They're aware of their biology and the circumstances of their birth, and if they weren't, they can count on people like Maya to remind them. 
But mostly, trans people try to draw the distinction between sex, which has certain biological realities, especially when it comes to healthcare, reproduction, perhaps athletic performance, and gender, which is largely defined solely by culture and changes from place to place, generation to generation, time to time, even by the whims of style and fashion. Saying biological sex is real is different from saying this person trying to pass themselves off as woman is just an ugly man in drag. Getting fired from an organization that's embarrassed by your multiple public harassing tweets of the latter is different from a researcher being fired for stating that there are chromosomes and genitals and that these are real things. So why does Roland conflate the two? I mean, you tell me. The full context certainly changes the average person's reading of the situation. Because the truth is, Maya Forstater could have easily phrased all those tweets to reflect any genuine concern she had for a gender-fluid person winning a woman's award and left out all the cruel name-calling, but that's not what she chose to do. That's not what she chose to do over several tweets over a fairly long period of time. Yet here we have Rowling signing a letter talking about how careful we should be that we don't let this so-called cancel culture choke out true and factual viewpoints in large response to criticism that she's received over doubling down on public statements that make me question whether she can handle truth or facts or nuanced discussions of same. Let's consider another recent example of canceling. Hamilton, the Broadway smash hit celebrating the life of America's $10 founding father, Alexander Hamilton, was just released in the Disney Plus service over the 4th of July weekend. It got enormous buzz. Everybody was watching it and talking about it. I'd heard the music before. I'd even gotten a really shitty bootleg recording a couple years back and tried watching that. But I had never seen the whole thing or heard all of the music. And I found it really compelling. It was an emotional experience. I've always considered myself a patriot. And I know a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at that. But hey, it's the Star Trek Republican in me, I guess. Sue me. I love this country. I love the land. I love the story. I love the people. I love its promise. But I admit, sometimes it gets hard when it feels like we're one of the only developed countries that's struggling to make headway against the coronavirus, that we'd prefer cracking protester skulls to giving people justice and having an honest conversation about who we think should be celebrated for all time with monuments and statues. And watching Hamilton was kind of a shot in my patriotic arm. Yeah, America's fucked up. But when you see a black man portraying George Washington singing about his retirement, quoting from Washington's actual retirement address, I anticipate with the pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize without alloy the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens benign influence of good laws under a free government. I mean... It kind of gives away the game, right? Because Washington, of course, was going to retire to Mount Vernon, where he owned hundreds of slaves. Thomas Jefferson, the villain of the second half of Hamilton, and who wrote the Declaration of Independence, said that all men were created equal and have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The man owned slaves. He also wrote that the slave trade was a hideous blot on our nation's founding, but he couldn't free his slaves, you see, because he was strapped for cash. And if he started paying the people to grow his crops and care for his land, well, gosh, could he even afford to keep Monticello? Were you even a person with rights and liberty in Jefferson's America if you weren't a wealthy landowner? He couldn't possibly do something like free his slaves. The contradictions baked into America, though, guaranteed that we'd have to fight a bloody civil war and that we'd be locked in a struggle for civil rights as long as we continued to deny them to anyone. Anything less, and we would be, by the lights of our very founding document, a failed state. And by recasting the founding fathers and everyone else in the musical as black and Latino people, immigrants, it made a point about the crucial roles these people played in our nation's history. I loved it. It made me feel good about being American, not in a lazy, complacent way, but in a way that resolved me to keep perfecting this union. Because hot damn, wouldn't it be something if a country on this earth could ever say that all of its citizens could enjoy the benign influence of good laws under a free government? Even today, that would be revolutionary. 
But I keep seeing this comment. I kept creeping up on my timeline on Twitter. Hamilton's being canceled. Lin-Manuel's apologizing. I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out why. So last week, I did a live stream where I attempted to dig into two recent cancellation topics that I really didn't know anything about. One was the attempted cancellation of Hamilton, and one was the backlash that Nick Cannon was receiving about possibly racist and anti-Semitic statements that he made on a podcast. Now, I wish I could share that resulting video that I made uh, on Twitch, but I didn't realize that new Twitch accounts, they don't archive any videos at all. Not for two weeks, not for two hours, not for two minutes, nothing. So I apologize if you missed the live stream, but the good news is I'll be doing more in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, And also the rest of this podcast is essentially a recap of that. So you didn't miss much. So before I started reading, I tried to think of things that might potentially have people wanting to cancel Hamilton for. I think that's a really good idea to see. It's like, okay, well, let me test my knowledge of how other people think and uh, different ways of of looking at this situation. And I started thinking, I, I know when it debuted that there was a lot of hue and cry over using black and brown faces to represent, obviously, white historical figures. But I felt like all that had been kind of hashed out and settled. And, and that was more of a, shall we say, conservative objection to Hamilton. And all the places I was seeing the current canceling calls or decrying the same were from more liberal or even leftist outlets. So that probably wasn't it. Was it the rugged individualism, lifting yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of story that Hamilton embodied? A poor boy that grew up in the Caribbean, surrounded by the worst aspects of the slave trade, death and personal tragedy. And he comes to New York City. He makes his home in Harlem and he sets out to distinguish himself in military, legal and civil service, working his way into the ranks of the elite and powerful with nothing to rely on but his sharp wits and indomitable will to succeed. I mean, that's the typical American dream, right? But a lot of folks are increasingly turned off by it. Why? Well, maybe it's seeing the hundreds of people that toil fruitlessly for every one that makes it the stable middle class success, much less the kind of power, prestige, and importance that Hamilton achieved. Maybe that has something to do with it. And you know what? I can see it. I can even get behind it as a critique. Hamilton really did overcome extreme odds to get where he did. Would the country have been better off if he died in squalor in the West Indies? What do we sacrifice as a country when we throw away so many lives and so much potential in favor of holding up this rugged individualist ideal that's largely a fiction? It turns out that's not the problem. Then I thought, oh, the women in Hamilton. There's only like three, and two of them are fairly thinly sketched, and the third is an antagonist. Hamilton's wife, Eliza, adores him until he admits to cheating on her in public, and then she canceled him. But after his death... She changes her tune and commits to a tireless campaign of historical research and public advocacy for his legacy. She spent the rest of her long life championing his causes and legacy on his behalf. That's not exactly the kind of thing that we like to hold up and idealize in today's climate. And I can see why people would be upset about that, but that wasn't it either. Reading up on it, there's two main critiques. One personally aimed at Lin-Manuel and the other at the story he was telling. For the latter, a lot of folks were upset that the play didn't touch on the issues of slavery or feature contributions of black folks much at all. At first, I was like, well, I don't know. It seemed to me that slavery was mentioned a lot and broadly put abolitionists like Hamilton against Jefferson, who hypocritically criticized the slave institution that he supported and practiced and profited from. But you know... All the talk of the Boston Massacre early on, and you can't even name-check Crispus Attucks? Widely considered the first American casualty in the Revolutionary War, historians still aren't settled on if Attucks was a free man or escaped slave. And on balance, you'd come away thinking the Federal Reserve System was more important to Hamilton than freeing slaves, and you'd probably be right. Also, by focusing on the special, almost father-and-son type relationship that Hamilton enjoyed with George Washington, who again owned hundreds of slaves, the musical glorifies and softens the image of Washington. Washington was a great man, no question. He held the country together in its infancy, often just by a sheer force of will and personality. But you could watch Hamilton and never even know the man supported and profiteered off of the owning of human beings. And to many, 
This feels like the same kind of whitewashing of the founding fathers that generations of school children have been subjected to by people who are so afraid that children can't love and want to help build up a country with a tragic backstory that they'd rather tell them half-truths and lies and demand they recite oaths of loyalty at the start of each school day than to trust them with real history. I mean... You can disagree or not. You can argue the point of how much a Broadway play has an obligation to the unvarnished historical truth. But there is a point here, yeah? And the other points I raised, you can see them, right? You don't have to agree with them, but you can you can see where they're coming from. And the other issue is that Miranda had used the N-word publicly. Now, the context was in reading for an audiobook on Hamilton where the source material contained a slur. Another one was a recording of him quoting the work of another author. And all this came to head over the resurgence of popularity that Hamilton was receiving in the lead up to Disney's release. It's almost like a second coronation of this thing. And people were advancing these legitimate criticisms of his work, debating what right a Latino man had to use the N-word, regardless of context. And thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people flooded to social media accounts to make sure that he was aware of the criticism. Now, if one of your neighbors comes to you and says, you know what, I think your new paint job on your house sucks. It's an eyesore. That's that's criticism, pretty pointed criticism. If 10,000 do it, well, that's a scary mob, even if the subject is just about the paint job and not about how you treated America's history of racism through the lens of hip-hop and Broadway musical fusion. Regardless of the intent of each person individually criticizing you, at some point, just a mass of it happening can be construed and actually is harassment. So Lin-Manuel disappeared off Twitter uh, for several days. He turned his Twitter account private and people were like, "Uh oh, he's stonewalling. And then there was blood in the water. A lot of people sitting back wondering, ooh, who is this kid? What's he going to do? Is he going to double down? Is he going to get defensive over this criticism of him as a man and his most recognizable work? Well, after the 4th of July weekend was over, he came back online and after quote tweeting one of the criticisms of how Hamilton handles slavery and the stories of the founding fathers, he said, and I quote, all the criticisms are valid. The sheer tonnage of complexities and failings of these people, I just couldn't get. I wrestled with it or cut it. It took six years. and I fit as much as I could in a two and a half hour musical. I did my best. It's all fair game. There's no sorry if you were offended, but no grandiose appeals to free speech and the sanctity of art, no long-winded stories about where he came from and how his neighbors back in his neighborhood used to talk to each other. He just listened to the criticism, said, yeah, you have some good points. And just like that, the vast majority of the criticism evaporated to the point where when I did my stream last week, it was pretty hard to find people still discussing it. I feel like most of the time people just want to be heard. If you're a minority especially, and that minority can be different in different contexts, but throughout your life, you'll have experiences that the majority simply can't relate to. And we try to tell them half the time they try to explain it away, tell you how you misunderstood the situation or say they've never seen anything like that. And I think a lot of the time this comes from a well-meaning place. Like a friend of yours tells you someone told them they're ugly or some shit like that. And you say, well, that's bullshit, man. Don't listen to that. That's not true. Don't worry about that. You try to minimize their trauma to help them make them feel better. And that makes a certain amount of sense, right? But imagine if it keeps happening and keeps happening. And all the time, all you hear is, are you sure you're right about that? That's not how things work in my neighborhood. Not in my place of employment. Not in my business. Not in my circles. Not in my family. Not in my school. Not in my police department. It might make you start to feel like you're crazy. And Lin-Manuel Miranda didn't try to make this about him. He didn't try to deny people's experience with his work and his words. He just said, I hear you. It's valid. I didn't quite get it right. But here's the tricky part. An unspoken part of this is that going forward, people are going to expect him to do a little bit better. If he goes on to make like Franklin the musical and Washington and Madison, all these smash hit musicals that make him wealthier and more influential, and he stills kind of soft peddling or pussyfooting around the issue of slavery, people aren't going to be so easily swayed next time. They want to see progress. They want to see effort. Do we have a problem with that? Is this unfair? Do we have some kind of vested interest in making entertainment that doesn't acknowledge the complications of our country's history? Is there really no way to tell a feel-good story about our country without 
letting us off the hook for our many, many sins? Can you not be proud of America for how far we've come and still acknowledge how far we have yet to go? Is it an artistic problem? Is it a problem of free expression? I mean, no one's saying that Miranda can't go forward in a completely cranial, rectal, co-located, tone-deaf kind of way, and he'd probably have a lot of defenders, and he'd make a lot of money. But also, can you maybe understand how more and more people would get sick of it, not want to support it, not want to buy into it? In other words, cancel it? Because that's what happens when you get valid criticism and you decide to ignore it. Now, on the other end of the extreme, last week Nick Cannon said a bunch of crazy shit on his podcast. I went into my review stream knowing that he had said something controversial and there was a lot of consternation among white Twitter especially that black Twitter wasn't enthusiastically or full-throated enough in its condemnation of Nick Cannon. Can you imagine? A black man said something racist on a podcast and not all black people condemned him outright. In fact, a few black people defended him. Can you believe that? That's some crazy stuff. This is a real problem, right? Well, let's talk about it. I mean, let's really talk about it. First off, uh, maybe I should say who Nick Cannon is. I, I really didn't know much about him when I went to look at this whole deal. I knew he was somebody, kind of in the same vague way I know that Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney aren't the same person in this kind of vague theoretical way. But if you didn't know like me, He's a rapper, actor, comedian, television host. You may have seen him on Wildin' Out, America's Got Talent, The Masked Singer. He starred in films such as Drumline, Love Don't Cost a Thing, among others. He's also married at one time to Mariah Carey. They have several children together. I didn't know that. He has a net worth of $30 million. What did he do? Well, Nick has a podcast called Cannon's Class. In an episode from June, he promoted several anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the wealthy Jewish Rothschild family, calling them the bloodlines that control everything, even outside of America. And then he went on to praise the leader of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, and then started dropping some racial science that he had picked up along the way. In fact, you know what? Let's just run the clip. Here's Nick Cannon, everybody. Melanin comes with compassion. Melanin comes with soul that mm-hmm. we call it. We call it soul. We soul brothers and sisters. That's the melanin that connects us. Right. So the people that don't have it have are are a little and I'm, I'm gonna say this carefully <laughs> are a little less and 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 where the term actually comes from because I'm bringing it all the way back around okay. to, to Minister Farrakhan to where they may not have the compassion or the the when they were sent to the mountains of Caucasus when they when they didn't have the power of the sun that was that the sun then started to deteriorate mm-hmm. them. So then they're acting out of fear. They're acting out of low self-esteem. They're acting out of a, a deficiency. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the only way that they can act is evil. The only way they can they, they have to rob, steal, rape, kill, and fight or flight okay. in, or, in order to survive. Exactly. So then these people who didn't have what we had, and when I say we, I speak of the mm-hmm. melanated people. Right. They had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had because they're in these Nordic mountains. They're in these rough uh torrential environments. Mm. So they, they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. Now here's the part of the podcast where I come back in to explain how this isn't actually racist if you understand the background and the history and you put these words into the proper context except fuck no i'm not going to do that because this is super blatantly racist it's so it's so racist it's the trifecta of racism it's got it all one white people are evil two this evil is not a choice we make but something that's inborn something wrong with our genetic makeup a deficiency in our bodies our minds our souls and three this makes us subhuman closer to animals that's some wild crazy ass shit that Nick Cannon is talking and this is why i really have stressed the difference between institutional racism and personal prejudice and hate because if i say something that's technically true in an academic structural racism sort of way, like black people can't be racist against white people. Then I'm going to tie myself into knots trying to defend how actually Nick's comments aren't racist because holy shit, they're really racist. 
but they're not institutionally racist, which is why I'm not going to lose sleep about it. And it doesn't bother me that black people don't universally condemn Nick Cannon either. Now, this might seem hypocritical or contradictory, but I think I can explain myself if you'll give me a chance, because there are several reasons. But first, I want to talk about Nick's comments, because a lot of this black supremacy stuff, I think a lot of people uh, don't know anything about. And it's really funny how they're literally the opposite side of the coin of white supremacy. So the prominent racial theory that's put forth by black supremacists is that white people were created in a selective breeding experiment by some prehistoric scientist named Yacoub that lived something like 6,000 years ago. The white race is a corruption of the original perfect black race. Whites are vile where blacks are virtuous. Whites steal where blacks create. Black people are beloved by God. White people lack souls. And they reserve special hatred for Jewish people who, as the ultimate insult, stole the black race's inheritance as being God's chosen people for themselves. Then they altered history and used lies and trickery to turn the entire world against them to keep people ignorant of the truth. And to this day, Jews control the world with lies and currency and media manipulation. This is, to restate the obvious, an extremely fringe position within the black community. But it is the official viewpoint of the Nation of Islam, of groups calling themselves uh, black Israelites. I take it internally that black folks call these types of people hoteps um, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. But that does seem to be the terminology. So if you hear that, see that on Twitter, uh, you might know uh, what you're dealing with. And what's amazing, again, to me, is if you know anything about white supremacy, this is just the bizarro form of it. And it's batshit. Black, white, all racial supremacy theories, they're all horseshit. But both white and black supremacy serve to answer the same question. Why are these things happening to me? Why did these other people act the way they do? If you're a poor white person living in a place with shitty schools, little access to healthcare, deep in debt, barely getting by, why is this happening to you? You're smart. You work hard. You love your family. These black people are committing all these crimes and they're celebrated for it. Cops try to put a stop to it and people burn cities down. It's insane. But on the other hand, if you're a poor black person coming from that background, you ask similar questions. Why is this happening to me? Why do white folks act the way they do? You're smart. You work hard. You love your family. These white people lie, cheat, and steal on a giga level, on an international level, billion dollar level, and they get celebrated for it. People named buildings and stadiums and built statues for them. And then they want to clutch their pearls when someone loots a TV from some megacorp during a riot about police brutality. We try to draw attention to cops killing us in public and they come away with their all lives matter shit. It's insane. The white supremacists say that black and brown people are low IQ and non-competitive because they evolved in tropical climates, you see, where they didn't have to worry about planning for growing seasons or wearing clothes or building any kind of sturdy housing. Everything was easy for them, so they never had to work for anything, which is why they don't want to work for anything now. The black supremacists say that white people are hard and cruel because they were driven to these harsh northern climates where their soul was beat out of them by the very lands they inhabited, and they're prone to cruel domination and taking things by force because they don't know any other way. Not only are these viewpoints eerie in their symmetry with each other, but they're just as often commingled with other harmful lines of thought. Black and white supremacists often traffic in ideas that are anti-woman, anti-gay. It's funny how all that stuff works. But these are insane answers to the question of why the world is the way it is. As I've tried to make this point repeatedly on the podcast, there are satisfying answers. You look at history, you look at psychology, you look at social studies, you look at economics, it's all right there. The questions have answers. The problems have solutions. They're not easy answers. They're not simple solutions. But Nick Cannon, well, hell, he can explain the problem in just two minutes. And he did. He just did. Why are white people acting the way they are? Why are black people oppressed? Well, white people have no souls. And the Jews control the world. And guys like David Duke, on the other hand, can do the same thing for white people and be just as short. Black people are just emotionally and mentally stunted. And also, yeah, the Jews control the world. Now, if I want to argue against them, I have to explain 400 years of North American history. I have to explain the psychology of why to the privileged and elite, equality feels like a form of oppression. I have to cite studies. I have to ask people to consider feeling empathy for lives they haven't led. 
and find difficult to even imagine. I have to argue with hard data against people's any anecdotal experience that they've ever had, and then they want to try to generalize about the rest of the world. If you're poor, if you're ignorant, if you're hopeless, answers that let you take pride in things that you had no hand in achieving, like your skin color, and allow you to hate without thinking an enemy that has no redeeming qualities, that's attractive. But here's why I don't lose sleep over black nationalists and black supremacists. But I am afraid of white nationalists and white supremacists. I'm going to paraphrase Michael Harriet from The Root here, who had a take on this whole canon situation that I really loved. And I'll link his uh, work on The Root in the show notes. But he said that he doesn't care if there's a white supremacist that stocks the shelves at the local Home Depot. He cares if there's racist judges, racist cops, racist politicians, because a powerless white man who stocks the shelves at Home Depot and hates black people, yeah, he's racist, but he can't materially affect any black person's day-to-day life. He goes on to say, a black police officer, on the other hand, wields just as much power as his fellow white officers, whether they are black or white, Cops are all subject to the same racist notion that black people are more dangerous, which leads to the disproportionate murders of black people. Now, I can't think of any black nationalist or black supremacist that work at any level in the federal government. Can you? On the other hand, we have U.S. Representative Steve King from Iowa. We talked about, uh, I think, uh, Three Right Turns Four on the unbearable whiteness of being, who said in 2019, White nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did this language become offensive? (laughs) Then we have former Senator and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who, among other things, said that the NAACP shoved civil rights down citizens' throats and that he thought the KKK was okay until they started smoking pot. Thank God he and Steve King recently lost their primary elections this year, so at least they're out of office for now. But speaking of Jeff Sessions, his former staffer back in the Senate days, Stephen Miller, is a real piece of work. He went to Duke University with out and proud white supremacist Richard Spencer. They worked together at Duke's conservative union. Trump hired him to be a senior White House advisor. In 2018, emails leaked showed that he had pitched dozens of stories to far-right media outlet Breitbart that he had read in white nationalist publications such as the American Renaissance and V-Dare, as well as Infowars. He also promoted The Camp of the Saints, a French novel circulating amongst neo-Nazis that depicts the destruction of Western civilization through third-world immigration to France and to the West. I mean, can you imagine if President Obama had made Nick Cannon a White House chief advisor just a year or two after he spouts off this Yakub stuff on a podcast? What if he made him attorney general? What if white people were just 15% of the population and we had one-tenth the net economic power of black people? How safe as a white person would you feel living in this America? But now I ask you, are you white? Do you have a Twitter account? Have you roundly condemned these men serving at the highest levels of the federal government? Did you even know about this stuff? And if you do and you have, how many of your white friends and family have followed suit? Has it been universal condemnation of these people? Well, we all know the answer to that. And that answer is the reason why Black Twitter was seemingly indifferent about condemning Nick Cannon last week. To be sure, there are folks that did it. Terry Crews, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, some of the notable people I saw calling Nick out for his anti-Semitism and hate speech. But why do we expect black people to universally condemn anything a crazy black man happens to say when we don't hold ourselves to the same standard? That's another form of racism, isn't it? A white guy says or does something crazy racist, and not only is the condemnation far from universal, but we'll actually spend hours on cable TV arguing about whether it's even racist. Trump can say people coming from Mexico are rapists and criminals, and we debate whether that's racist. One of his staffers, known to hold far-right views, can show up to an event with a Hungarian Nazi medal pinned to his suit. We spend weeks debating exactly what that pin might have meant in the historical context of 1921 Hungary. And does it necessarily mean that he has to be a Nazi? And nobody sticks a microphone in our face and demands from all of us an explanation of this. Because they're just guys with crazy beliefs. But a black man? Well, that's an indictment of blackness in America. That's what's wrong with black people in America. It's the result of rap music, of higher education, of victim culture, of black resentment. Blah, blah, blah. It's ridiculous. In fact, the reason why white people nowadays are bristling at the term white people 
being thrown around is because we're used to being treated as individuals. The idea that we belong to a collective group that people might ascribe bad motives to, well, that's insulting. And it is. It sucks to be lumped into a group and dismissed because your skin is a different color or you happen to live in a certain region. So bringing all this back around to Nick, sure, Nick Cannon is fairly wealthy, has several public platforms, though he's lost most of those in the last week or two for, for obvious reasons. He's not quite the powerless, racist white guy mixing paint at Home Depot, but even so, can he craft anti-white racist policy? Can he write speeches that the president's then going to deliver to enthusiastic crowds, whipping them into anti-immigrant and anti-black sentiment? No, and that's why I'm not going to lose sleep over it. But why shouldn't we cancel Nick Cannon if we have the chance? Must he have a platform? Should black children be taught Yakubian science right alongside their social studies so they can see both sides represented? Should we teach flat earth theory right alongside earth science? I don't want that shit taught. I don't want those ideas out there in the mainstream. Does that mean I'm afraid of open debate? I mean, I feel like I can tear the shit out of white supremacy and black supremacy, Holocaust denialism, bogus IQ research, all kinds of stuff. But I don't see the point in teaching people the wrong things just so you can then teach them the right things. I mean, sure, teach people how to reason, how to critically evaluate information. But that doesn't mean we have to hear from every neo-Nazi and black Israelite to satisfy some idea of a robust free market of ideas. There are too many real problems with really nuanced, difficult answers that we can focus on. By the way, let me wrap this whole supremacy talk in a neat little bow. You want to know the super duper secret way to defeat black supremacy? Take care of black people. You want to know the super duper secret decoder ring way to destroy white supremacy? Take care of white folks. Give them health care. Give them economic opportunity. Fix their shitty schools. Invest in their towns, their cities, their neighborhoods. Let them see a bright children for their future. And I promise they will forget all this neo-Nazi and hotep shit. So what do I think about that Harper's Magazine letter calling for free speech to be respected and civil discourse of ideas not to be hampered by angry crowds? I think some of the people signing it, like Noam Chomsky, have a right to fear free speech restrictions because they've lived through it. And they've seen how the country can get torn by war, divided by race, looted till the cupboards are bare if we stop caring about what's true and what's right. And I think some of them are hacks that are hoping we don't notice the little shell game they're playing where they equate any criticism with harassment. They can't accept valid criticism, but they want to be accepted by their fellow elites. But their gosh darn sexism or homophobia or racism or transphobia just isn't tolerated the way it used to be. And why can't we talk about this stuff in a civilized manner? Why can't they still get paid and still get lavished with praise and get their due as public intellectuals, huh? Now, criticism can lead to cancellation, no question. If someone is over here talking about Yakub creating the evil white race or saying black people are descendants of the cursed sons of Ham, and I say, that's fucking stupid, read a book, and people agree with me and they turn their backs on that nonsense, that's free speech working as intended. But I also get the feeling that some of these hacks don't like the fact that the internet and social media in particular has reduced the barrier it takes to become a critic, to become a respected public intellectual. They very much like the old system where they got to decide who got exposed and for what. They want to be able to decide if we cancel the Nick Cannons, the Lin-Manuel Mirandas, the Sinead O'Connors, the Muhammad Ali's of the world. They want to decide what issues have merit and which ones we should look the other way on. They don't want a person with a thousand Twitter followers looking into who they follow and who they like and what they retweet. They don't want to have to explain why they attended cocktail parties with fascists and rubes that peddle conspiracy theories about race and class and sex and gender. They want to decide when it's acceptable to debate a person's humanity and worth to society and when that's beyond the pale. And they certainly don't want anyone pointing out that a lot of time they use their own personal experience as a judge for what's okay and what's not. And they really, really, really don't want anyone asking, hey, aren't you guys all kind of from the same background, have remarkably consistent skin color and all have the same approximate net worth? I also want to note with a little bit of delicious irony 
that several of the signatories of his open letter on cancel culture expressed shock and dismay that they were associated with some of the other names of the people signing it. And some have also engaged in public attempted canceling of their peers and fellow signatories since the signing. I mean, you hate to see it, folks. The pain, the trauma, the shame of cranial rectal collocation. They just can't help themselves. It's just so moist and dark up there. Let me tell you, I've been there. And I support criticism, whether it's directed at me or causes I support. I don't welcome nor condone harassment, but I've received my fair share of both. And if I keep doing this show long enough, I'll get plenty more. But at the end of the day, cancel culture isn't something you can criticize except in the broadest, most general terms possible. It's bad to harass people, right? It's only worth talking about in specifics. Who's being canceled? How much power and influence do they have? What's it about? What did they say? Is it true? Is it misleading? Who is trying to get them canceled? What are they wanting to achieve? These are the questions you have to ask because they're the only ones that are going to lead to conversations worth having. Each case is different. Otherwise, we're just both sidesing everybody's worst assholes on both sides. And where is the enlightenment in that? Because nobody is a free speech absolutist. Who out there is like, now hold on, we need to hear more from this Nick Cannon guy. But on the other hand, while I'm cool with Nick being canceled, I'm cool with us pulling financial support, withdrawing our attention, criticizing his views harshly. I hope he comes back from this. I hope he gets educated. I hope he learns the truth about the world and uses his perspective as a former black supremacist to help others avoid that path and to help those walking down it come back to reality. Because who better to talk a hotep out of being a hotep than an ex-hotep? And God, I really hope hotep isn't one of those words a 43-year-old white guy can't say. But you know what? If it is, I can apologize. I can learn. I can acknowledge the legitimacy of that criticism. And if I ever stop being able to do that, well, maybe it's time to cancel me. Get me off the air. Stop paying attention to me. But hopefully, today is not that day because we do work hard here on these things. And if you think they help, or if you've learned anything today that you don't get from your average, everyday sort of political podcast... We could really use your support. The best way to do that is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Your patronage entitles you to special bonuses like subreddit flair for r slash swizzbold and access to our monthly special patron only live stream that we archive on our Patreon site. And look at that. It's almost August. It's just around the corner. Still plenty of time, though, to get signed up so you can participate and suggest topics on this month's live stream. And at this time, I'd like to especially thank all of our Fred Level patrons by name. Thank you, Angela Morano, Jenny, Brandon DeVito, Arvin Rao, Jared Harrelman, Laura Luthi, Byron Rassaman, Kira Grusho, Greg Rasp, George P. Burdell, Lisa Singleton, James Taylor, Mark Hahn, and Jordy Hoyt. Thank you so much for your generous support. If you have a righteous complaint, criticism, comment, or dare I hope an attaboy... You can send it to 3RT at swizzbold.com or participate in the show threads on our subreddit at r slash swizzbold. Follow us on all the social medias at swizzbold. Thanks so much for listening. Check out One Weird Trip next week as Cecily and I will be doing our best to dish out more ideas and more tips for better living and living your best lives. I'll be back the following week on... And I'll be back on the following week on Wednesday to champion what needs champion and cancel what needs canceling. Until then, stay safe, help a friend register to vote, hell, help 10, and have a great week.